If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. There aren't many facts in this case that we can be certain of. We know that three people were murdered, and we know that Reuben Carter and John Artis never received a fair trial. That was Joel Hammer talking about the story of Reuben Carter. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. This week, BBC World Service launched a new podcast which investigates a brutal triple murder that took place more than half a century ago in New Jersey. One of the men originally convicted for the crime was the boxer Reuben Hurricane Carter, whose incarceration would later inspire a Bob Dylan song and a film starring Denzel Washington. 
Here's a clip of the series. Less than a half hour ago, a jury reached its verdict in Patterson, New Jersey. In 1967, the boxer Reuben Carter, known as Hurricane, was convicted of murder. Carter and artists were found guilty of gunning down three people, triple murder in a bar. Carter always maintained his innocence. We were convicted, said Carter, because we are black. It's a story that's entered popular culture. Bob Dylan wrote a song about it, Denzel Washington starred in a movie about it, and after 18 years in prison, a judge over turned Reuben Hurricane Carter's triple life sentence. Carter said he and Artis did not, would not, and could not commit the crime of triple murder for which they have been found guilty. But the full story of the murders has never been told until now. 50 years later, this is the story of the hurricane. The podcast series producer is Joel Hammer, and I caught up with him a few days ago to find out more. Why did you feel that this was a good time to revisit Reuben Carter's story? Well, as journalists, we we love a good peg. And um, when we first came to this story, it was towards the back end of 2017, which was the 50th anniversary of the first conviction of Reuben Carter and John Artis. And uh, as I say, as good journalists, we we love an anniversary. So we thought it was a good time, a good opportunity to to revisit this story, um, which is well known to some people. Um, Obviously, it was extremely famous in its own time time. Uh, Bob Dylan wrote a song about it and there was a Hollywood film that was in the year 2000 so there's a a whole generation who perhaps are not aware of this story at all and quite frankly it's too good a story not to bring to as many people as possible. And how much did you personally know about Ruben's life and this trial before you began work on the series? I didn't know a great deal. Um, I, I'm the producer of a show called Sports Hour on the on the World Service, and it's a show that uh, tries to cross the bridge between sports and culture and history. And so we, we covered his death in 2014. Um, we did a feature on that when he passed away. Uh, but to be completely honest with you, not a great deal more than when I was researching that particular feature. So I'm not a huge Bob Dylan fan. I am not a movie buff, so I wasn't aware of the song uh, uh, I've never watched the film. I still haven't watched the film to this very day. So, to be honest with you, I was I was fairly ignorant of the story. Uh, my colleague Steve Crossman had been a massive fan of the film, and it, it piqued his interest again in 2017. and And he began to look much more closely into it, and, and quickly realised that the film is, uh, let's say, one interpretation of of the events, and and realised that that perhaps the full story wasn't being told. Uh, and that we could try and tell it. And what kind of sources or interviews have you used to try and retell this story? So we've been extremely fortunate um, because we have managed to track down a very high percentage of people directly attached to the case and speak to them, the ones, of course, that, that are still alive. Um, so we have John Artis, who was the man who, alongside Reuben Carter, was convicted twice and, and spent so many years in prison. Um, so we, we've spoken to, to John. But from that, we managed to track down the leading police officer, or at least one of the leading police officers in the case, the man who arrested Carter and Artis, who's never spoken to the media before. Uh, we also spoke to the assistant prosecutor uh, for the case, uh, Ron Marmo. Again, someone who'd never spoken about the case publicly before uh, because we did want to try and get as many voices involved as possible uh, who had direct information, who, who were primary sources. We were left with one major 
difficulty, which was that Ruben Carter had passed away in 2014, and the lead detective on the case, Vincent de Simone, had passed away in the 1970s. So we were worried because there's such crucial elements to this story that we would have to tell their their story through our own words or through other people's voices. But through through our investigations, we came across various recordings that have never been released before, never been broadcast before, um, of Carter and indeed of De Simone. So we are able to hear from these two major characters in this story through their own words. It's not quite the same as, a, as an interview, like you're with me, you can ask follow-up questions, maybe awkward questions. They are tapes very much of their thoughts just rolled out over over the tape uh, but in it, it they both reveal themselves and their thoughts on the case so we feel like this resource is is absolutely amazing it gives an insight into not just the case but who these people were as you mentioned before you've you've got a background actually in in sports journalism so from that point of view i wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how good a boxer Ruben Carter was and how he got into boxing. Yeah, absolutely. I think like so many other boxers, uh, he saw the redemptive quality of boxing. He used it to lift himself out of the poverty and the, quite frankly, appalling upbringing that he had. So, um, as I say, like for many people who take up boxing, he saw it as a, as a route out of the life that he had. Um, he first came to boxing really in the army, uh, in the 1950s, he joined the army having escaped from a um, juvenile detention centre. Uh, he took up boxing there and when he left the army, he realised that this was something that he he could perhaps make a living from. Unfortunately, his past caught up with him in the sense that it wasn't long before he was back in prison. And it's in prison that he really begins to focus his mind on boxing. So much so that uh, the day after he's released from his sentence, he fights his first professional fight. Uh, so he was clearly very ready by that point. We're talking um, sort of mid-1960s, um, when the boxing profession was very different from what it is now. So you you might fight twice, maybe three times in a year if you're at the very top of your game, as Carter was. Back then, the, the, the fights were much more frequent. So he might fight sort of seven, eight times in a year. And he was good. He, he was very good. Uh, and he got to fight for the middleweight title. He failed in that particular contest, um, losing on points uh, after 15 rounds. And that fight against Joey Giardello probably marked the, the height of his career. Uh, but there's no doubt that he was an exceptionally talented boxer. He, he has such quick hands and, you know, you don't get called the hurricane for nothing. So he, he would come in the ring like a whirlwind and fights would often be over in the first couple of minutes. So it shouldn't be doubted that, that his career was uh, was of a high quality. He never, never became world champion, uh, but he was clearly a contender. Now, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the events of June 1966, which are, of course, the, the crux of the story. So what exactly happened on that particular night? I can, I can tell you about some of the facts that, that sure. are known. It was the evening of the 16th of June 1966. It was a hot Thursday evening, uh, very much like many of the Thursday evenings that had come before them. It was called 
Pot Washers Night, and it was a night for partying in the town of Patterson, which is about 20 minutes' drive from New York City. The city might have only been 20 minutes' drive from New York, but it was decades behind in many other aspects. And the city at that particular stage was on the brink of racial clashes. Uh, there had been riots in, in many US cities, uh, and Patterson was no difference. The events of the night themselves, are, uh, what is known is that, that three people were murdered at the Lafayette Bar and Grill. A fourth person was shot and would die later, many years later. So three people were murdered and the police quickly picked up Reuben Carter and John Artis, who were driving around Patterson on the night of the crime, around about the time of the crime, uh, in a car that seemingly had been described by a witness at the at the actual scene at the Lafayette Bar and Grill. The murders took place at 2.30 in the morning. Uh, the police were called at 2.34, and they had actually pulled Reuben and John Artis over in the car that had been described by one of the witnesses. At that particular point, there were three people in the car and they were looking for two people. Uh, and so they were let go. And about 20 minutes later, having dropped off their passenger, Carter and Artis are now two black men in a white car. And they very much fit the description that the witness has given. And so they are pulled over again. And this time they are taken back to the scene of the crime. They're taken to the Lafayette Bar and Grill. I, I've got to say that, that John Artis is extremely eloquent in his telling of the story, far far more so than I. Um, and he, he was a 19-year-old kid, effectively, um, and he had never had any difficulties with the law. Rubin was, had quite a criminal record and was very well known amongst the police. Uh, they were both taken back to the crime scene and then from there they were taken to the hospital where one of the witnesses, the one who survived, was uh, being treated and uh, Carter and Artis were shown to this witness uh, but the witness was unable to identify them, he said that they aren't the men. This didn't really stop the police in interrogating them and, and they interrogated them for 17 hours. It wasn't until late on uh, the Friday night that they were both released. But it's important to say that they were released. So come July 17th, the day after the murders, the prime suspects, according to the police, are, are released and they're not arrested for, for another four months. You've already indicated that there may have been a racial dimension to the events. What was the nature of race relations in a place like Patterson at this time and how far did it affect the case? This this case is imbued with racism and with the, the times that they were living in. Um, I think it's really important to remember that Carter was born in 1937. Uh, when he was born, he had a relationship with his grandfather. His grandfather lived through slavery. So he had a direct relative that he knew and he would speak to about the effects of slavery in the United States, um, which seems on some level so alien, so such a long and distant concept, such a shameful one so long ago. But of course, for Carter, it wasn't. He, he would hear the stories from his grandfather. And the events of the crime, 1966, we're talking what? two years after the Civil Rights Act has been passed. We, we are talking at the very height of the civil rights movement. And 
Paterson itself was a city that was experiencing white flight. The community that had been established there for many years was changing, and the the boundaries of where the community for for black community was and white community was changing. And the bar where the murders happened on was right on that boundary. And Carter was unashamed in his support for Malcolm X during that period of time. He was uh, not afraid to speak his mind and to suggest that black people and black, the black community should defend themselves pretty much by whatever means necessary. And so this entire case, and even today, even up to today, it's, it's completely wrapped up in attitudes towards race in America. It's, it's, it's impossible to see this case in any other way. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. Here's the high-stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV begin Thursday, June 6th on ABC. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to The Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Carter and Artis were both convicted for the murders. Was it at the time viewed as a miscarriage of justice or did that only happen later? Well, I think obviously for, for Carter and Artis, it, it very much was considered a miscarriage of justice at the time. The case itself got a huge amount of press because it was a heinous crime. It was one of the bloodiest murders that the state had ever seen. Uh, and there was a lot of pressure on the police and the authorities to to find a conviction. And I think once they were convicted, a lot of the press just died away. But I think it's worth pointing out that we have Carter and Artis, two black men who have been found guilty of murdering three white people, including a woman. And at that point in time in New Jersey law, if the death penalty was sought, then the jury would decide as to whether that conviction would come with death or with life imprisonment. And I find it almost impossible to understand that the jury came back with a guilty verdict, but not deciding to execute them. And John Arsis is, is convinced. He says that one of the lawyers said to him that a year or so after he spoke to one of the jurors and, and they said that they, quote, unquote, couldn't kill the kid. And so I, I don't know, obviously, what was going through the minds of those jurors at that time, but I do find it 
I do find it amazing that having found them guilty, they decided not to uh, sentence them to death. Whether that was because they had any doubt at the time of the of the veracity of their decision, I have no idea. Um, it certainly became a miscarriage of justice um, in 1976 when the first verdict was overturned. And when they were sentenced again, they had a second trial in 1976 and, and were reconvicted. Again, and naturally, a lot of the support uh, that they had received in gaining the new trial disappeared and, and they spent another fairly long period of time in jail without anyone caring about their case. But eventually, in 1985, their convictions were overturned a second time. And there, there aren't many facts in this case that we can be certain of. We know that three people were murdered and we know that Reuben Carter and John Artis never received a fair trial. That's, that's almost as much as we can say uh, for facts. The second trial occurred about a year after the famous Bob Dylan song Hurricane was released. Do you think that song itself had any impact on um, Reuben Carter's second trial happening? Legally, no, absolutely not. I mean, the, the the decision to overturn the case was based on prosecutorial misconduct um, and failing to disclose all the evidence that the prosecution had to the defence. So in, a, in, in legal terms, it didn't make any difference. But I think unquestionably the Dylan song, and it wasn't just Dylan, by the way, um, there was a huge celebrity campaign. Dylan obviously was the most famous and, and his song perhaps um, most memorable uh, but it wasn't just him. I think it did lend itself to uh, pushing the people who were making the decisions based on the legal information they had. It must have had some sort of influence. And it certainly influenced the prosecution and the authorities as they prepared for the second trial. They felt very wronged that these Hollywood stars should come uh, descend on their small town and tell them how to deal with justice. And so it had a number of effects. It, it certainly helped to bring his case to prominence and probably in you know nothing else, their subconscious helped to get them the second trial. But it also created this atmosphere, this added tension between the prosecution and, and the defence. What do you think this case tells us about the American justice system at this time? Um, I think it's difficult to extrapolate what one case might tell us about an entire system. But I think there are things that happened in the investigation that perhaps do lend themselves to things that would happen elsewhere that, that might have happened and that might even continue now. I think when investigators start looking into a case and they begin to suspect someone, they can often get tunnel vision. They can often find evidence and then get it to fit to the theory that they already had or put particular weights on a bit of evidence and discount other bits of evidence. And I think that probably still happens today. So I think I think that is something that, that is, is worth mentioning. What does it say about the system today? John Artis tells us that he feels that if this had happened today, that he might not have even made it 
to the jail cell. He, he feels that certain parts of the country, to be a black man and to come into contact with the police can be an extremely dangerous thing. And he, he tells us exactly that. So I'd be hesitant to say exactly what it tells us about the system then and now, but I think as you listen through the series, it will become quite clear that certain issues that uh, blighted the case then are still the case today. I won't ask you to give away any spoilers here, but having reviewed all the evidence, do you come to a conclusion as to who really committed the murders in 1966? Yes, we do. We do gather together lots of information over the course of the entire series, and we do come to a conclusion um, based on the evidence that we've found. As I say, there are very few facts that can be absolutely testified to. We know that three people got murdered. We know that two people were unfairly convicted. Um, we believe that there is information that we have found that would point certainly to an alternative theory to the night of the crime. And that obviously raises a large number of questions for uh, quite a few people. And as part of the series, you have spoken to people on the, uh, the police and prosecution side. How do they look back on the case now? Do they feel regrets or do they still think they got the right man, the right men? Those who we speak to who um, were on the prosecution side or the, or the police authorities, they still very much believe that they got the right man. Uh, they are entrenched in their position and uh, perhaps unwilling to countenance certain suggestions that we make to them about bits of evidence and, and, and facts attaining to the case. But I think you'll find that a lot of people, uh, particularly in America, have, have made their minds up on this. They have, If you are a supporter of Carter, then you are absolutely livid that the idea that anyone could even conceive that he was guilty of this crime. And equally, if you are uh, part of the prosecution, uh, it's, it's, there is no way th that he is innocent. There have obviously been a spate of true crime TV series and podcasts recently, things such as Serial, Making a Murderer, The Staircase, things like that. Do you see the Hurricane Tapes as being in that tradition or is it actually telling a different kind of story? That wasn't our intention, certainly. I mean, the, the truth is, it is just an absolutely fascinating story that at every stage has twists and turns that you genuinely, if you wrote it as fiction, you'd be laughed at. It's told by some of the most compelling and charismatic people that I've had the fortune to meet. So our original plan was very much just to tell the story through as many voices who were there as possible. It's just that once we started on this journey, you know, often people we were interviewing would say, oh, but have you spoken to X or Y? And we'd be like, oh, no. And they were like, well, you must speak to them. And and so then they would have, it would be the same thing. And so all of a sudden, we, we, we've spoken to so many people in the case. And what we realised is that the, the full story had actually genuinely never been told. The Hollywood film is a, is a saccharine version of what happened. It makes Carter out to be a, an angelic figure. And uh, that's just that's just not the case. Um, so um, we feel like we are just telling the story for the first time in its in its entirety. We're not judge or jury. We're not investigative journalists. We are just laying out really what we have found, and at the end we will say what we think based on that. Okay, I think I've been through all my questions. Was there anything else you think we need to talk about at all? 
I think it's also really important to note what Carter did when he left prison as well. And of course, the focus is naturally on the events of the night of the crime and the system and the court cases and all the issues that surround that case and society. But on a human level, I think it's important to look at what Carter did after his release, because he dedicated the next 25 years or so of his life to helping the wrongfully convicted. He effectively became the figurehead for that community in America and in Canada. And he played a very significant role in helping several people undo and unpick justices that had seen them spend great periods of time in prison. So he made a significant difference to those people and to the wider understanding of wrongful convictions. And that is often forgotten when talking about the events of 1966, but it is really important because if we're looking at the man as a whole, then that part of his life is very important. That was Joel Hammer. The first two episodes of The Hurricane Tapes are available to download now from BBC Sounds in the UK, as well as on iTunes and many other podcast providers around the world. And forthcoming episodes will be released each Monday until the start of April. And we have now reached the end of today's episode. But please do join us again next Monday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.